Well, good evening, men. It's great to see you this evening, especially on uh, this occasion, another question and answer in Men of the Word. Uh, These are times when we take a break from our regular study in the book of Proverbs this year and invite a guest to come and answer some very important theological and ministry and practical questions for us. And as has already been mentioned, we have the joy tonight of hosting Dr. Owen Strand. And I want to give a few words about Dr. Strand before I ask him to fill in some of the details. Uh, Dr. Strand uh, has flown in today from Kansas City. He is a professor of Christian theology and director of the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. In addition to that, uh, he is a member of Mission Road Bible Church, which is pastored by mutual friend, whom you men probably know as well, Rick Holland, who served here for many years on staff at Grace Church. So Dr. Strand knows our dear brother Rick very, very well. Owen is also a prolific writer. We saw some of those works already. Uh, The trilogy, What Does the Bible Teach About Homosexuality? What Does the Bible Teach About Lust? And What Does the Bible Teach About Transgenderism? Those three booklets were released this year by Christian Focus, and then that other book that we already mentioned, Reenchanting Humanity, was last year, I believe, 2019, uh, released by Christian Focus as well. And in addition to that, he's done quite a, quite a bit of other writing as well. He's married and has three young children. So tell us a little bit about your family to begin with. I am married to, uh, to Bethany. We've been married almost 15 years, and we have three children. Ella is 12, Gavin is 9, and Ainsley Kate is 6. So uh, we have now completed our six-month spring break, and uh, we're back to school five days a week, and uh, that's very exciting. My son is currently Kansas City Chiefs mad as you might expect. I mean, to be a boy in Kansas City right now with Patrick Mahomes just running things is crazy. And so he's absolutely swept up in all the Chiefs' madness. Well, one of the things we certainly want you to say when you get back to your family is a note of appreciation from us that you would take this time to fly out to Los Angeles and spend the evening here with us, especially when you're so busy. Maybe take just a few moments to summarize the ministry that you're involved in today. What's really, what really gets you, your heart beating for the things of the Lord these days? What are you involved in? Yeah, I appreciate that. And I very much appreciate the partnership with you and, and being able to come out here to such a, uh, a great church with such a strong ministry, uh, a, a ministry that is blessing not only many here in the room, of course, but, uh, many all over America and beyond. So what an honor. Uh, what really gets me going is to try to defend as best I can and promote the parts of God's Word that are vital for the church to affirm, but that the culture is problematizing. So I don't exactly know why. Perhaps it's growing up in New England. I'm, I'm a child of Maine, so the other coast. I'm an unrepentant Boston Celtics fan. We were going to be friends, weren't we, some of us, until this? Not anymore. Aren't we tied now? Lakers and Celtics, 17 banners. You guys just tied us. 
that I felt that in my soul. I want you to know that. So, um, in all seriousness, uh, very much just wanting to defend those parts of God's word that, um, that are vital for the church to affirm, but which we are all, all of us, me included, inclined to shrink back from defending when the culture says, mm, that's out of bounds. We can't talk about that. Church, you shouldn't believe that. You need to conform to what we say. And frankly, we're seeing a lot of pressure from the culture toward that end in sexual ethics and other areas today. And uh, a lot of Christians, sadly, a lot of churches are basically saying, okay, we're not going to give up our belief wholesale, but we will at least go quiet on this. And I believe we can't go quiet. I believe we have to tell the truth on every area of doctrine, every area the culture is engaging us on. And God has given me training toward that end. Growing up in uh, coastal Maine, I was in a tiny Baptist church of about 50 people. I I was in a public high school where there were about two other Christians out of 160 students. So I had the wind in my face, literally and figuratively, from a very early age in Maine. And that that actually helped me, though. And, And in some way, this crisis we're going through now in America is going to help us I believe God will do good work in us through this, even though it doesn't feel that way now. So all that to say, in training at at different schools, uh, Southern and then Trinity, for my MDiv and PhD, I got got further exposure to what it means to take theology and take culture and, and smash them together and try to be faithful in the midst of all that. So that's some of my burden. We certainly appreciate that, and what we especially have come to appreciate in you over the last several months in particular is your resolve and courage to draw a line in the sand at some very, very important points, especially in a a time when it seems like the greatest evangelical virtue today is to capitulate, that that's what's prized in the broader evangelical church. And one of those areas, and we want to focus on that on this area tonight is the area of transgenderism. Just a few things that uh, relate to this. Really, Los Angeles is ground zero for the transgender ideology. Uh, Even some of the leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement have come from Los Angeles, and they're steeped in this, and they spout this regularly in their teachings, and that all comes from Los Angeles it is ingrained in, in today's social justice movement. Uh, just this morning, the, one of the main headlines in the news was that uh, Pope Francis endorsed civil unions between same-sex couples. Uh, it's, it, it's rife in the school systems here, whether that be in the elementary and, and uh, secondary schools or the universities. Hollywood entertainment is filled with this, social media influencers, and of course, it's an election year, and one of the parties has transgender ideology as one of its major platform issues. So these are very hot topics today. In fact, I I read a, a, a poll recently put out by the Pew Research Center that said one in four generation Zers, that is those born in the late mid to late 90s, all the way to the beginning of the 2010s, one in four identify as transgender or queer, or gender queer. Now, 
you know, how accurate those statistics are, I don't know. But we would certainly tend to see that today as we look at the media. This enormous number of young people are now self-identifying as transgender. Six in ten Generation Zers say that there should be more than two options for designating sex or gender. So this is a very hot topic today, and we as Christian men in particular need to be aware of these trends and need to be ready for a defense. We as men, Christian men, not just the pastors and leaders of the churches, although they're on the forefront, but we as Christian men need to be those who are taking every thought captive and submitting it to the Lordship of Christ, and this is one of those areas. So let's begin with some definitions. Define for us, and and just also to let you know, I've been collecting questions from men over the last week or so, and I'm going to be working through a a list of questions uh, this evening, and these are the questions that have been sent to me. But here's the first one. Explain transgenderism. What are the basic presuppositions or worldview tenets of this ideology? Transgenderism is basically the view that we have two separate sexes within us. We have a biological sex that is uh, found in our body, our anatomy, and then we have a brain sex that is contained within us. You're not able to find it, but it's your inmost understanding of your gender. So at base, there's a separation within transgender ideology between these two understandings of who you are in relation to sex, biological sex and what's called brain sex. Transgender as a movement comes out of the broader sexual revolution, and it's the later stages of what earlier was developing in America in terms of the feminist movement. The two are not the same. They don't come from all the same people, and yet It's not incorrect to say that these different views really do spring from the same soil. A transgender person then believes at base, to put it most simply, that they are uh, trapped in the wrong body. You'll often hear language like that. So they were born with the body of a man or a boy, but they actually have the identity of a woman. And a further term we need to add to the table is that of transition. And I'm guessing and knowing that you're hearing these terms in the media today, but when an individual recognizes that they are trapped in the wrong body, they then are encouraged today, basically, as you rightly said, at every turn, to take steps, whether through medication or through surgery, through bodily presentation, the clothes you wear, lipstick you put on, etc., and so on, to transition to the opposite sex. Supposedly, the interesting thing about transgender ideology is that it is non-binary. So um, I'm guessing not a lot of you in this room have on your Twitter profile or your Instagram handle non-binary, but in terms of those stats you gave about Generation Z, if you were to look at social media, and some of you have seen this looking at your kids' peers, social media feeds, this sort of thing. If you're to look at their feeds, if you're to look at their profile, you'll see that it's pretty common now. It's actually hot now to identify as non-binary. In other words, you don't belong to the male-female binary. You're something different 
You're something more than this. You're something in the middle that can't be quantified. The interesting thing about transgender ideology is that it actually falls prey to and creates a new binary, binary and non-binary. So it turns out that binaries are hard things to escape. This is a quick rundown, then, of the the core tenets of transgender ideology. There's more to say. I'm sure we'll talk about more. But those are some of the basics. In this uh, this movement, there is this fascination with the concept of identity. Could you you explain that more? It, it, It never used to be such a big deal as that having that freedom to self-identify. Where, where does that come from compared to what society believed even 50 years ago in that area? I think we have to zoom out pretty far to really answer this question as best we can. And I think we actually have to see that there are really two ideologies at play, as Abraham Kuyper said so many years ago. About 120 years ago at Princeton, Kuyper said, The fundamental contrast has always been Christianity and the idols, the living God or paganism. You have probably heard the term paganism. Sometimes it's thrown out as kind of a, oh, that's pagan, but we don't always define it. But in reality, I think paganism is the anti-system that a real devil, Satan, operating in the Garden of Eden to try and cause Adam and Eve to sin against God. This is the system that he proposes. In other words, God is the creator, but Satan sets the the cosmos up as if there is no creator and as if God has no divine authority and as if there is no such thing as male and female and as if Adam is not the one, in fact, who is charged in Genesis 2.15 prior to Genesis 3, where the serpent is actually tempting Adam and Eve. In Genesis 2.15, the Lord has commissioned Adam to work and keep the garden, uh, to to guard and protect the garden even. But Adam is failing in that role in Genesis 3. So what Satan is doing in Genesis 3, 1 through 13, when he's tempting first Eve and then Adam uh, to eat the forbidden fruit, is he's not just getting them to eat an apple they shouldn't eat. He's actually undermining what we call creation order. Adam is made first. Adam is the one who is called to work the garden, to provide for his family, and to protect the garden, to protect his wife, to ward off any who would come against Adam and against his family. Satan is undermining that in this real historical fall in Genesis 3, and thereby introducing an alternate worldview to Adam that is contrary to all that God has said, all the instructions God has given, all the commands God has laid out. That is really where I trace paganism to. So paganism is an ideology that argues that there is no creator, there is no design for man and woman, uh, there is no real order to the cosmos, There is no covenantal design for marriage, a man taking a woman as his wife for life, uh, as a little picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ marrying his bride, Ephesians 5. All that is off the table. There is no such thing even in a hard and fast sense as male and female. In a pagan worldview, you don't have any oughts. 
You, you don't have any sexual design that you're supposed to conform to. And therefore, to bring it all the way back to your question, you don't have even a stable identity that you're supposed to inhabit. Paganism denies who we fundamentally are constituted to be, the image of God, Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Well, guess what? If there's no creator, if we're just evolved from gases, uh, there's no image of God, and there's therefore no formational human identity. There's just you deciding who you want to be, and no one can tell you or me otherwise. So we've all heard this. I'll close this little point on this. We've all heard in some form, follow your heart. Follow your heart. When you've heard that in a Disney film or a cartoon or a movie or something, you weren't necessarily thinking, ah, neo-paganism in action, you know, or some weird thought. Turn to your wife and say that next time you hear it. She'll look at you like you're crazy. But um, I think that's actually what you're hearing. I think you're hearing a serpentine hiss in your ear, and the Scripture fundamentally says the opposite. It says, don't follow your heart. And that is what we need to say to our age. Now, what you've just described is very serious, and yet when we look at what's happening in the broader Christian culture, and even if we would define it as the broader evangelical movement there seems to be a growing number of churches, a growing number of professing Christians who would say, well, this issue of transgenderism, the issue of homosexuality, these are just secondary matters or tertiary matters even. Yes, they may not be the preferred lifestyle, the preferred way of living before God, but these are not issues over which we need to divide. These are not damnable heresies. They're just indiscretions. So how would you respond to that? Is this issue, let's just take transgenderism, is it a fundamental issue facing the church over which we need to divide? I think it is. Yes, absolutely it is. It is, it is a first order issue. It is a matter of fundamental discipleship and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's funny because it's sort of like how in sports you can almost take the fundamentals for granted and think, I don't really need to work on dribbling in basketball or, or in soccer because I, I really need to, to learn the technical and advanced skills. No, you don't. Over here at UCLA, John Wooden used to spend the first minutes of practice teaching his, his players how to tie their shoes. In other words, he was communicating to them that the basics matter all the way down to your sneakers. If you're not tying your shoes right, your laces will come untied and you'll trip in a pivotal moment in the game, this sort of view. The same thing is true with the basics of human identity. We could be tempted to think male and female is so basic, it's kind of up for grabs. The opposite is true. We may have taken these things for granted for decades in the Christian church. Of course, there's male and female. Of course, boys are raised in a boyish way. Of course, girls are raised in a feminine way. Of course, everyone sees this as fundamentally good. Friends, maybe they once did, but no longer. Welcome to Babylon. This is where we are. 
Welcome to a neo-pagan cultural order now. If you're like me, if you're raising kids, young kids at home, this is what they're going to grow up in. And these are first order issues to embrace the body God has given you is to fundamentally obey God in a most basic way, but a most absolutely vital way. How would it work out in in a Christian home if the child said, I'm going to obey you, dad and mom, and everything you teach me, except for this fundamental reality of who I am bodily, my bodily identity. Everything but that, I'm totally good with. I'm going to follow your teaching and, and go with what you say. It wouldn't work, would it? Why would we think it matters less to God? Friends, the positive way of saying this is God makes us either a man for his glory or a woman for his glory. And he wants us, therefore, in, in you know, little boy and little girl form, to grow up into that as a disciple of Jesus Christ. So we are trying to raise masculine sons to God's glory. And we are trying to raise feminine daughters to God's glory. Is there some gray area in how we do this in certain matters? Of course. But that's our fundamental reality. Sadly, Brad, many evangelicals uh, don't seem to confess that now. And they're missing core discipleship realities. And that means, yes, that in days ahead, if you do not affirm what the Bible teaches about the sexes, I can't have fellowship with you. I mean, not even just in days ahead. When I say that, I mean things are sharpening. But I mean now. The stakes are very high. Related to that, it's common today to hear things like this, that, well, the sin of homosexuality or transgender transitioning, uh, they're really no different than the sins that are respectable among Christians to use the terminology that uh, Jerry Bridges used, respectable sins, things like overeating, gossip, things like that. You know, they're really all on the same level. And we certainly know that Christians struggle with overeating, Christians struggle with gossip. So we really have no basis to put any extra focus on issues such as transgenderism or homosexuality, we got to treat all sins equally the same. How do you respond to that? Yeah, it is true, of course, that every sin ever committed by any human being separates us from a perfectly holy God by an infinite distance. So let that be said as first principles. There's no sin that's okay. There's no sin that half separates you from God. There's no sin that sends you to hell a third of the way. Every sin, whether it is a sin of identity thought, word, or action infinitely separates us from God because God is perfectly holy and perfectly just. Not the starting point, by the way, of a lot of our discussions about these contested matters. It's not that we pit the holiness of God, the justice of God against the love of God or the goodness of God. We don't. We don't pit any attributes of God against each other. But it is that even as we confess the love of God— world without end, amen, we also have to confess the holiness of God. These things hang together. We don't pick which one we like, but sadly, evangelicals often do this. So we need to be clear that every sin separates us from God, but we also need to be clear that there are some sins that violate God's will, 
And then there are some sins that violate God's will and God's design. And if you would open to your Bible, Romans 1, I believe this is a congregation that delights to open its Bible, and I do too, and we need to. Romans chapter 1, verse 24, I could read a much broader section, I won't, just in the interest of time, but Romans 1, 24 reads this, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. What is in view here? What is in view is that this bodily sin is, yes, a sin against God's will, but it is something very strongly blasphemous to God. In fact, Paul is talking in this section in Romans 1 about the worst possible social outcome of following sin among a people, and it is this, that the people would reject God's design for the sexes, God's complementary picture, complementarian theology, we call it, and that men would stop being men and women would stop being women first, but then secondly, they would make good on that rebellion in sexual terms. And Paul says that doing so is exchanging the truth about God. About God? God isn't a male or female. No, but this is God's design. And humanity is made in God's image. And so we're a little tiny reflection of God's glory. All humanity is, even post-fall, I believe. All this means then for our society that we are building, friends, lie upon lie upon lie upon lie. That's where we are. That is sadly what transgenderism represents. It's not that somebody who would be caught in this pattern of sin is irredeemable. There is hope for every sinner, no matter how far they are pursuing uh, sin. And yet, we do need to be very much sobered by this word in Romans 1 from the Apostle Paul and see that there are some sins that especially offend and blaspheme God. In the Old Testament, those sins are called abomination. He doesn't use that term here in Romans 1, but that's what he's meaning. Yeah, and even in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul alludes to the fact that, that sexual sin in particular has a way not only of expressing depravity in its, its greatest forms, but also the, the rebellion against God that's there. Now, I want to uh, refer to something that happened last week related to what we're talking about tonight. It happened in a town hall meeting where... Uh, Candidate Joe Biden was given this question, and I, I want to talk about his response and how this is, is such a danger to our, not only our culture but to the church and what the implications are should this become the policies of our country. Uh, Thursday, October 15th, this is what the question was at, at, the, uh, at the town hall meeting. The Trump administration has attacked the rights of transgender people, banning them from military service, weakening non-discriminatory protections, and even removing the word transgender. How will you, as president, reverse this dangerous and discriminatory agenda 
and ensure that the lives and rights of LGBTQ people are protected in the United States. And Biden provided this answer. He said, I would flat out change the law. I would eliminate Mr. Trump's executive orders, number one. He went on to state, the idea that an eight-year-old child or a 10-year-old child decides, you know, I decided I want to be transgender. That's what I think I'd like to be. It would make my life a lot easier. In response to that, there should be zero discrimination. End quote. Now, this is the platform of the Democratic Party. Zero discrimination against the child or the parents, the child who would decide this as an eight-year-old, not even able to drive, not even legally recognized as being able to enter a, a, a liquor store and buy liquor or tobacco. This is the platform of the Democratic Party. Zero discrimination against the child or the parents who would enable that child to transition to that child's preferred gender. Now, that resounds in a society that is all about anti-discrimination. It's all about love. We need to love our neighbor, and so love means you just let them do what they want to do. But where's, where's the danger in this kind of mentality? Yeah, it's really well laid out. Basically, our culture has redefined love to mean total affirmation of anything I want to do. So that's really the flip side of that coin, follow your heart. I follow my heart. That's my role. That's my responsibility. Your role is to affirm anything I do, just so you know. And this vision of love is absolutely sweeping our country and sweeping uh, the West more broadly. Biblical love, very quickly, I'll get back to the question. Biblical love is transformative love. Biblical love does love all humanity as made in God's image, yes. But fundamentally, what we are calling people to is not to affirm themselves wherever they are, but to be transformed by the gospel of grace in the name, by the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is biblical love. Biblical love is not affirmative of sin. It is transformative to sin. It's being called out of sin into God's marvelous light. And there is no love, true love, that does anything but call a sinner out of sin. So in similar terms, Biden and others are calling uh, failure, failure to affirm transgender identity, even on the part of an eight-year-old, discrimination. And as you said, discrimination is just about the thing we fear the most being labeled as today. Now, in one sense, we shouldn't discriminate against people in the sense that we hate them for our own self-selected reason. No one should affirm that understanding of discrimination. We don't. But we do affirm a, a kind of discrimination in the sense that we have to discern or discriminate between truth and falsehood. So that word has been co-opted, don't misunderstand me, but we all have to discern between good and evil. And friends, let me speak very directly. It is wrong. It is wrong to let an eight-year-old child make a transgender transition. I'm going to press in. It is effectively parental abuse. It should never be done. It sets a child up 
fundamentally to travel a fast highway road to hell. And we, as the church, I don't know how much cultural power we will have in days ahead, cultural influence. We have to stand against this, not because we hate any individual, whether Joe Biden and his confused self or any other person out there, some parent in the local PTA, the local school who's trying to figure these things out and and actually thinks they're being loving by going with what Biden said. We have to tell the truth on these things. We have to help fellow citizens in America see that this isn't love at all. Actually, what love looks like is taking a child who, who may feel a pull to cross-dress, may feel a pull to do so, not because the father or mother has in any way encouraged this, by the way, but because the human heart is fallen and desperately wicked, and we don't naturally incline to God. There are no natural children of God. There are only supernaturally born children of God. What that means is, even in some families in a church of this massive size, there are going to be children, I'm sure there are, who who face from a young age issues of feeling like they are trapped in the wrong body. And what we do with them is we work through that, we talk through that, we try to understand where this is coming from, and then we make clear to them that this is morally wrong and we can't affirm them and that we're going to love them all the way through this and all these sorts of things. And by the way, if there's anyone here tonight of any age who, who does embrace a transgender identity or does feel pulled to to cross-dress or these sorts of things. We speak the truth in love to you. We love you and we want your good. But in loving you, to bring this back to where I started, we're not going to affirm you in your sin, just like you shouldn't affirm us in our sin of any kind. Instead, we're going to call you to the upward grace that is in Jesus Christ, to transformation. As you look at the culture around us and you hear these kinds of statements, it's only a matter of time before this kind of a platform becomes the law in a strict sense. And we're going to face these challenges where you will have children, eight-year-olds, who because of the natural heart that they have will express these desires. Christian parents who then will attempt to train and instruct and bring the gospel to bear Uh, in that child's life, but soon it'll become the law that that kind of reaction to the child's desire will be considered a crime. And the likelihood, especially in a socialist-leaning culture, the likelihood of children being taken from homes is looming on the horizon. As you look ahead at things and you see the direction, I know you're not a prophet, but you know how far away do you think we are from that kind of a time? Perhaps weeks, <laughs> depending on how things go, depending on what polls you're reading. Uh, I don't think we're far away at all, Brad. I don't think we're far away at all from that potential reality. It, is, it could be the case that in God's common grace, even if Biden wins uh, and seeks to advance a very strongly pro-LGBT agenda, as I assume he would, that's what he's saying he wants to do. That's not my partisan take on him. It's what he's telling us he's going to do. He's saying this. He's giving us that quote in a nationally televised town hall. Consider the boldness of that. Consider how 
no presidential candidate has ever said anything remotely approaching that. And that tells us where we are. So I think churches like this, like mine, in Kansas City, um, Christian families, um, Christian business owners, Christians in secular businesses are potentially looking at a tsunami gathering height by the hour that will potentially break over us. Now, God's common grace could in some way uh, slag that off and, and cause it to go elsewhere, or we don't get hit, or some of the courageous senators in the U.S. Senate actually spend their gunpowder and speak up against this and, and help in different ways, and there's, I don't know, a populist uprising in America. I, I don't know what can happen. There's a lot that can happen, right? And so we are not reading history as doomsdayists, but as full-throated believers in the absolute sovereignty and providence of Almighty God. Having said that, we also are realists, and things look like we are in unprecedented territory. If, if President Trump wins, um, it seems to me like we stave off that to some degree for, for a little more time. But even if he wins, we should not let ourselves be deluded to think that this massive neo-pagan, neo means new, by the way, this new paganism is just going to vanish. It's not. We'll get into it in just a few minutes about how families and and even churches can prepare for that, especially with respect to their own children. I just want to give you one more illustration here about what's happening here in California in a, in a similar incident at the end of September, the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, quite gleefully signed a bill called AB 2218, which provides state funds for gender clinics to cover the cost of transgender drugs and surgeries for children. Now, evidence shows that the long-term effects of such practices, the administration of drugs, and the surgeries, which really amount to genital mutilation, that these are devastating and irreversible, nothing short of acts of cruelty. Now, again, many in our culture simply do not see it this way. Again, they see it as something loving to do for the sake of the child. And the governor of California always proclaims his his obedience to science, but there's nothing scientific about chromosomes and hormones and anatomy. Uh, that's science. But what he's, he's advocating here has nothing to do with those things. So in, in light of that, how can we be involved in trying to, to rescue those caught up in this false science, uh, this, this cultural movement that has support, especially here in California, from the, from the very, very top. What, can we, what are some practical things we can do? And like I said, we'll get into the specifics of how to, how to protect our families a little bit later on, but some general ideas. I, I think we do a lot of work. We, we spend a lot of attention and time at this worldview level that we've been talking about. And I think that we try to do as much work as we can at the kind of slogan level that we were talking about, the sort of don't follow your heart principle. Uh, a child may feel, a, a given person may feel that they should run into the 405 
you know, at any given moment. But uh, it's not loving to affirm such a desire. It is loving to say, actually, let's reconsider that and think about some different options. Why don't you run into this baseball field right here? That's better for you. So I think we've got to do that kind of work, and we've got to show our friends that nobody believes, actually, that they truly should follow their heart in all it leads them to do. Um, I think we've got to make clear as well some of the material that you just cited. Uh, Stats like tragic, tragic stats, like the fact that people who go through a gender transition, believing they have a transgender identity, are about 18 times more likely to commit suicide uh, than uh, more traditional folks. And we need to make clear that there may be a great deal of ideology from a governor or from a college professor or from a friend or a peer group on social media saying, go this way. But actually, that is a very perilous way. And uh, these surgeries will mess with you and do tremendous damage to your body, mutilating it, as you said. And then you will potentially be so undone in your biology and your confused mind and heart that you will then think that the only way out of this, your only salvation in this situation is to kill yourself. Again, the stakes, I keep repeating myself, the stakes are very high. So I think we have to, I think we have to make clear that the ideology behind this movement is bankrupt. I think we have to cite some of those statistics to people who are potentially being pulled away by this ideology. And then I think we've got to make the biblical case. I think we've just got to make the the biblical case to people that they are not trapped in the wrong body. They may feel that way. And we need to reach out with genuine compassion. Some people who feel pulled to a transgender identity have gone through unwanted abuse. It's documented. Not all, but some have. And we have tremendous compassion for people who have suffered abuse. We're not like, we're not like sort of turning a deaf ear to that. We have great compassion for individuals who have gone through that. We don't think that going through abuse means that you should respond to that any way you see fit. In fact, we actually recognize that sin usually begets more sin and chaos usually begets more chaos. And so if terrible things are done to you, you will very likely feel pulled to do terrible things to yourself or to others, depending on who you are and the situation you are in. So we want to speak the biblical witness, the kind of worldview that we're trying to unfold here bit by bit, and show people the distinct glory and beauty of biblical Christianity and the regenerate Christian life. The transformation people need is not a transgender transformation. It is a salvific transformation. The true problem with transgenderism is that its transformation ideology doesn't go far enough. We believe not just in changing a body or changing your clothes or changing your your personal pronouns. We believe in, in changing the heart by God's grace, God giving us a new heart. That is a truly radical transformation that we all desperately need. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Another question here. We agree that physical defects are not the fault of the individual who bears them. We could look at John chapter 9, where the disciples ask about the man born blind who sinned. We, we tend to try and 
trace it to some guilt on that individual's part. But how do you respond to those who say that same-sex attraction and gender dysphoria, gender confusion, are mental defects just like physical defects, and some people are just born that way, and in the same way that we wouldn't uh, accuse or guilt a person for some kind of physical defect, we shouldn't accuse or guilt a person for feeling same-sex attraction or confusion about their bodies. So, you know, how do we compare those issues of transgenderism, same-sex attraction to physical defects? Are they not just part of the, uh, the effects of original sin and the corruption of the whole human yeah, here we have to be very clear that we are an embodied soul uh, as a human being in, in my understanding of Scripture's teaching. And so we do have a body and we do have a soul, and the fall affects both body and soul and affects body and soul significantly in some cases such that you can have certain biological problems that flow directly from Adam's sin all the way back in the garden, and you are not held culpable morally for your bodily state in that respect. But here you have to recognize you're not just a body, you are a soul. And God holds your soul accountable before him. Really, these terms are often synonymous in Scripture, but heart and soul and spirit, there's some disagreement among theologians, admittedly, but basically there's a lot of interplay between those terms and, and while our body is, is not where we find moral culpability, our soul is. So out of the overflow of the heart, for example, the mouth speaks. That tells us that our, our heart or our soul is really the seat of our spiritual existence, whether unbelieving spiritual existence or a Christian spiritual existence. Therefore, the way we engage matters of the body and the soul. The way we, the way we handle a, a body that is damaged by the fall actually is a spiritual matter. So we can't fundamentally buy this category, in other words, of saying there's this kind of defect uh, of the body, so there must be mental defects. We have to say there can be bodily defects, yes, but actually even the way you handle your bodily defects is a spiritual reality. I'm sure if I were to go to church with you here on a Sunday at Grace, many of you do, I would see different individuals who face bodily challenges. Some of you do. And you know, dear saints, as we have at Mission Road in Kansas City, who week by week, day by day, year by year, handle these matters to the glory of God and seek even with an impaired body. We all have an impaired body. Of course, we're all headed for, for dust, aren't we? but seek to, to steward that to God's glory. Let's go to another text very quickly in, in a second part of this answer. Deuteronomy 22. Deuteronomy 22.5. This is a very important text for you to know in terms of a biblical approach to transgenderism. This is the Old Covenant law, yes, the Deuteronomic law, and embedded in a whole bunch of prohibitions about various and sundry matters, which all 
are important to God, and so we don't demean them at all, but is a, is a principle that not only applies to the ancient Israelites in their national form, but applies directly to the, the moral existence of the Israelites. Deuteronomy 22.5 in the Old Testament, a woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Note that last clause. Whoever does these things is an abomination. That's as strong as the Bible gets in terms of moral condemnation. It doesn't say does abominatory things. You understand the point? That's strong enough. Toeva in the Hebrew. This is is an abomination. If you cross-dress, if you try to take on the identity of the opposite sex in ancient Israel, it's not just that you've done a naughty thing. It's that you are yourself an abomination to God. Again, this is extremely strong language for 2020, even in evangelical circles. But friends, men, this is the word of God. And we are men. We have to lead in the church, in the home, and in society. And part of being a man, a biblical man, is affirming what the Bible affirms and affirming it full-throatedly and wholeheartedly. And this is the old covenant law laying it down and telling the ancient Israelites whatever their background is. It doesn't give any psychological background. It doesn't say if you have suffered these circumstances, which I'm sure happened there as it happens here, and which is a real thing that has to be handled with compassion. But that's not in view here. The simple act of cross-dressing is abomination. You correlate that with 1 Corinthians 11. I won't go there and read that, but you see different hair lengths for men and for women. We'll often take that text and say, oh, but there's a lot of fluidity in different cultures, so you don't really have to obey 1 Corinthians 11, 3 to 16. Hold on. The fundamental principle in 1 Corinthians 11 in the New Covenant, the New Testament, is the same as Deuteronomy 22 in the old. It is this, embrace the body and therefore the bodily identity God has given you and do not choose the opposite bodily identity or God will judge you blasphemous. Now, in response to that, sometimes we hear this line of reasoning. Well, what do you do with those those who suffer from what sometimes doctors call intersex, or I think in one of your books you call it the disorder of sexual development. In other words, a baby still even in the womb does not develop sexually uh, according to the the norm. And so you, you have a baby that's born that it's, you know, is it male or female? So there we have a, a situation where now the physical body even obscures through that defect the gender in, in some way. How do you respond to that, especially when people say, well, see, here you go. Here you have a situation where it is a physical defect, and therefore, you know, that leads us to a kind of reasoning that says that defect can then continue on into the mental state even if the body isn't ambiguous. Yeah, it's interesting because that is actually where the LGBTQIA plus movement will go to really ground their whole understanding of this topic. 
they will go to the extreme examples, rare, of DSDs, disorder of sexual uh, development, which is a better term than intersex, as, as I understand these things. Uh, and, and they will say, see, this is an example where there's both genitalia present. And that problematizes your whole worldview, all of it, all this stuff that we're saying. We do the opposite, fundamentally, and we say, no, uh, the vast majority, 98 to 99% of humanity is is born with one set of genitalia, and that determines who they are bodily, and that therefore determines who, who they are, a man or a woman. So we start with the clear and reason to the less clear, where sadly the LGBT movement starts from the less clear and reasons to the clear. Um, in, in the case of DSDs, uh, which is a real condition and not one chosen by parents or by children, um, if there is a male chromosome present, um, doctors, Christian doctors and theologians and pastors typically teach, then raise the child as a boy, as a man. If there is not a male chromosome, raise the child as a girl. And that's where you seek to have clarity to this issue. We recognize, furthermore, that a DSD is not a positive state. It doesn't conform to God's original design. It is therefore an effect of the fall. And yes, the fall does affect our biology. We see that. Uh, So we seek where that effect of the fall plays out to address it with great pastoral sensitivity and care, bringing in Christian doctors, hopefully, if we can, and then raise that child according to the clear teaching of God's word. By the way, admitting, Brad, that we're going to have some, probably some some challenges here. Um, We shouldn't think, and I don't want to be heard as saying, that if you just get your Bible and you just read this stuff, and then you get your kids in front of you, and you just sit them down and you kind of point your finger at them like this, it's all going to work out perfect, and, and, and sprinkle some gospel dust over them as well. It's all just going to work out perfectly. There's going to be ebb and flow. It's going to be hard. It's going to be challenging. A fallen world is pulling at them. A fallen nature primarily is pulling at them. Um, but, but we have clarity, I think, if we think these things through. I, I want to touch on something or, or ask you a question related to something that you already mentioned, and it relates to what is called egalitarianism or, or feminism. Now, this has existed even within the evangelical church for decades already, and I know you're a teaching fellow with the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, so you do a lot of writing on complementarianism, how male and female are distinct functionally. Would you say that some of, if not a large degree, of the confusion in the evangelical church today over transgenderism and homosexuality can be traced to the arguments used by feminists within the evangelical church. In other words, you know, the egalitarian movement tries to erase functional differences between male and female, saying that those differences are not part of God's uh, design for men or women. Either one can be engaged in these different functions, whether it's leading a home or pastoring a church. Is there a direct correlation between that that mentality that came into the evangelical church in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and the, the expressions of openness to transgenderism today? Yes, that, there's, a, there's a definite link there. Uh, there are some egalitarians today who are holding out uh, on this issue. 
thus far, and we hope they continue to, there are a good number, many, who are not holding out. And so the sad trajectory would be if you loosen God's design in the home uh, so you don't see the husband as head of his wife, uh, you don't see the, the father as the one who has responsibility to shepherd his children, you don't see a wife as called to submit to her husband, you don't see a wife as fundamentally given the glorious privilege of being a mother and a homemaker as God blesses and allows, uh, if you loosen those things in the home, then you cue yourself up for a second loosening in the church now in terms of who is going to be pastor and elder in the church. So your first move is going to say, there's not really a head. Husband and wife share authority in the home, where the Bible says, the man has authority in the home, God-given authority, that he must steward in a Christ-like way, Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, and yet he has God-given authority in the home. Egalitarians say, mm the spouses share it. The next move down is to say, okay, in the church too, uh, creation order doesn't matter, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 9 to 15. It doesn't matter that the man was created first, as Paul says, before the woman, and thus has the responsibility of headship in the home, and he's talking in this context about the church. No, 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 says the egalitarian. Just like we've loosened authority in the home, now we loosen it in the church. So women and men can both be elders and can both be preachers. Your third move then, and here's the really big one, is to say, you know what? Now that we've gone this far, maybe there really isn't such a hard and fast thing as manhood and womanhood at all. Maybe we ourselves are being fundamentalist on this issue. I'm speaking as an egalitarian now uh, of a modern kind. And so now we're going to loosen not only roles in the home, roles in the church, but the very identity of the man and the woman. And that is exactly what has happened. You're exactly right. That is playing out right now in evangelicalism. And it's playing out, oh boy, open this door. Let's open this door. It's playing quickly. It's playing out because of what is called intersectionality. Intersectionality is the fruit of what we call hard postmodernity. It's related to critical race theory and wokeness. And it is basically the view that you're either oppressor or oppressed in all relationships and situations you have in life. And we'll just compress quickly here. And so men have historically had authority and influence and leadership roles in, for example, the Christian church and the Christian home. And that is an example, according to a secular intersectionality advocate or guru or scholar of oppressor-oppressed dynamics. And so all you men out here, let me simplify, all you men out here who hear Dr. MacArthur and think that you are supposed to, from the Apostle Paul, be the head of your wife, you are acting as an oppressor of her. And she is the oppressed. That's what an intersectionality worldview tells women today. And the strangest thing, Brad, is that that is now in the church, not just in the far reaches of the church. That's in the camp. And women are being told this. They're being told that complementarity, the system that we hold, and are trying to spell out here very fast, We are the oppressors of women because men have authority in certain ways. 
given by God. And that is fundamentally a power imbalance, and therefore that is oppression. And if you embrace that, good luck. Good luck continuing as a Christian, because that is an altogether unbiblical principle from an unbiblical system that cannot coexist ultimately with Christianity. Yeah, I want to come back to this uh, idea of intersectionality and critical race theory. But a couple more questions related specifically to the transgender issue. What counsel would you give to a Christian father if one of his children approached him and said that he or she was starting to believe that they were he or she was born into the wrong body? What does a Christian father do? Let's go back to that example that uh, you know, Biden spoke heresy on and instead give the truth on that. An eight-year-old who says, I think life would be easier if I was the other sex. What does a Christian father say? I think Christian fathers are going to be hearing this more and more uh, from children who are being influenced by our society and culture. And I think what a father has to say is, let's just go with a son for now. Uh, Son, I understand that you feel this way. The truth is that we all feel different ways because of the fall. So in a sense, it is natural for you to feel this way. Son, you're going to have feelings. You're going to have desires that come naturally to you. And they're going to feel good to you. They're going to feel right And people around you are going to tell you that those desires and those feelings are right. But you need to take those feelings and desires and not believe them initially. You need to take them to Scripture and evaluate them and consider them in light of God's wisdom and God's will. And in this case, son, it is not God's will and God's wisdom for you to embrace the feeling that you are trapped in the wrong body. This is your heart, your sinful heart, lying to you. And I want you to understand, daddy's heart lies to daddy. When daddy believes something terrible in a lustful way or in a proud way, or when you have seen daddy's temper get the best of him, and daddy think, if I give in to my anger in this moment, it'll make everything good. When you've seen daddy do that, You have seen daddy follow feelings and desires that are not right and that God's word says are wrong. And ultimately, if daddy follows them all the way, we'll send send a sinner to hell. So, son, I love you. I love you so much. God has made you just the way he wanted you. You're not an accident. You're a boy. God made you a boy. I love that you're a boy. I love doing boy stuff with you. And I want to keep doing the things that you enjoy doing according to God's word that that you like. And we're going to fight our desires together, son. And here's the major way we're going to fight them. When we have these desires, when we have these feelings that are not in keeping with God's word, we're going to ask God to forgive us of them. And we're going to claim the blood of of Jesus Christ. And we're going to say, God, forgive me by the blood 
of your son because I am a sinner and my feelings and desires are not honoring you now and do not honor you now. And I need you. I need you to forgive me and wash me clean. And that's how we're going to handle these feelings. Yeah. Amen. How would your counsel be to a, a daughter? Now, the son, we feel that as, as men, uh, that ability to disciple more directly and to, uh, to model masculinity more directly to a son. What about to a daughter who says that to, to either, you know, the, your wife or to you and says, I, I think I'm in the wrong body. I need to be a boy. You, you've given that great counsel for a son. How, would that differ at all with respect to a daughter? How would, and, and more specifically, how would you involve your, your wife in responding to what your daughter has said? Yeah, great question. I think I would. I think I would say very similar things. I would. I would try to. I would say the things about desires and feelings. Nothing changes there. Nothing changes about daddy's desires and feelings being needing to be repented of as well. Uh, we wish we could tweak that, but we can't. Um, and nothing changes about the blood of Christ washing us clean. But I would want to, of course, articulate the beauty of femininity. To my daughter. So I'd want to say something, I won't go through the whole thing, but I'd want to say something like, sweetheart, God, I have two daughters. Now you're going to get me. I can talk directly to my son easier than I can talk directly to my two little girls because I'm picturing my six-year-old little blonde girl and trying to articulate this to her. What a world we're in, friends. Uh, anyway, uh, I need to pull it together here on stage. Okay, let's do this. Um, sweetheart, you, you, you need to know that God has made you a little girl for his glory and I love your femininity and your beauty. And that is, that is from God. And so you need to know that these desires and feelings that are telling you that you're, you're a little boy are not the truth. And daddy has all these same feelings and desires that, that aren't godly, not all the same ones, but daddy has those too. And daddy has to repent of those. And so mommy and I want you to understand that God does not want you to act like or look like a little boy, but he wants you to embrace being a girl to his glory. And God will give you the strength to overcome these desires, and he will do so through the blood of his son and through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And then I would, I would, I would grab my little girl and I would just, I would do the same for my son, uh, but I would give her a hug and I would, I would just be praying for her and praying for him that she would see the beauty of God's design, because that is what is really at stake here. We're not just incidentally male or female. We are a man for God's glory and our joy. Piper is right there. Or we are a woman by God's design and for his glory and our joy. And so we're not going to know joy in coloring outside of those lines. That's so helpful. Let's turn now to the issue of critical race theory, wokeness, intersectionality. In, in more recent months, you have done some writing and speaking on this issue, and you have issued some strong warnings to Christians regarding the infiltration of critical race theory and intersectionality into the church. Now, let's again go back. Let's define those terms once more, uh, each one of those, critical race theory, intersectionality, and wokeness. And obviously, they're really speaking on the same idea. But 
why do we find those in, those words differently, and what do they refer to? So if you could start with that, and then I'll ask you a follow-up question about why you have issued such strong warnings to Christians about these threats. Wokeness is basically you waking up to the fact that America is structured along evil racial dynamics uh, such that our whole society from uh, roots to branches is white supremacist, basically. And so you wake up to the need, woke, you wake up to the need for social justice such that society is altogether re-envisioned uh, and, um, and made right. That's a quick take on wokeness. Critical race theory derives from critical theory, which is closely related to Marxism. We've got a lot on the bar here that we're bench pressing intellectually, especially for 8 o'clock at night. Good job, guys, by the way. Good job. And we don't even have donuts and coffee like every other men's event in history. So power ahead. We're, We're really spiritual here. Yeah. Yeah. These guys are running on fumes, man. We're doing neo-Marxism at 8 p.m. Uh, on a Wednesday. So, so um, critical race theory derives from critical theory, which is basically the view that, similar to what I was just talking about, but th- that the world is, is structured unequally. That was originally a Marxist claim, right? Some of you know this firsthand. You were taught Marxism or, or variations of it or heard variations in school and college, university. And so Marxism argues that the world is unequal economically, the rich oppressing the poor, basically. And so there's a need for a collective uprising uh, and overthrow of the ruling class. Uh, so critical race theory builds off of that and says in similar terms to what I just mentioned with wokeness, that Marxism was right, that the world is unequal in evil ways, but it's not unequal only economically, it's unequal racially. Critical race theory develops in legal circles. I'm sure we have some lawyers, judges, people working in the legal profession in a room of this size. And so some of you know that critical race theory is actually this kind of legal, small legal movement 40 years ago that doesn't get a lot of traction, but it has jumped the tracks in our time, and it has gone global. And it's now really the the dominant movement in your average secular college or university teaching young people that they need to understand that the world is racially unjust and there is this need to rebalance society along racial lines. Intersectionality is, again, they're all related. Um, you, can, you can split them apart, but they're also, they're working to common ends, I would say. Intersectionality is, is this idea that builds off of CRT that just as in particular African Americans have been wronged by a, a wicked racial order at the legal level and other levels, uh, so there are actually a whole bunch of groups out there who do not have privilege and influence in society. And so we need to recognize that there are intersecting oppressed groups and do what we can to make society right and, and lift them up effectively. Their, in, their interests intersect. So in light of those definitions, uh, you've issued some very serious warnings that this is infiltrating the church. The church, many church leaders are asleep at the wheel or complicit 
in the infiltration of this ideology? Uh, what has prompted you to sound such a strong alarm? Now, we've, we hear it here because of the faithful teaching of Pastor John, and we'd just be interested a little bit to know how that has impacted you, your, your thinking on this, and, and uh, how that has led to where you're at today. Yeah, I see that this is really sweeping broader society, but it is especially infiltrating the church. And um, I gave a series of lectures called Christianity and Wokeness about three weeks ago in Minneapolis. I was asked by a church to come out, Redeemer Bible Church in Minnetonka, Minnesota, and give these lectures. So if you want to look at them, they're on YouTube, Christianity and Wokeness. And um, basically, there's a lot to say that I think is need, that needs engaging. But here's the claim that I think is probably the most troubling of them all and is being smuggled into evangelicalism and that has caused me to really wake up to this. It so you're is, getting woke. I'm, yeah. In the right sense. Yes. You're going to get us in trouble, my friend. No, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's the view that every white person is a white supremacist. If you follow critical race theory and wokeness and intersectionality, that's really the cash value of these systems. That's really the major claim. It's not just that there's systemic racism and structural racism. That was kind of the language a few years ago. But Ibram X. Kendi, who's at Boston University and is the leading critical race theorist slash woke scholar of our time, has said that the greatest danger in America is not the alt-right wanting a, a white ethnostate, white, traditional white supremacy with only white people in the society, which is a terrible thing. Kendi says the worst threat is the normal American's desire for a race-neutral society. Okay, so what does that mean? A lot, of, a lot of us heard growing up that Martin Luther King Jr., not an evangelical, clearly not, but nonetheless one who articulated this vision for society that his children would not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And many people from a variety of backgrounds and worldviews, frankly, saying, that's a sound idea. That's something more or less that we can affirm. That's sometimes called a race-neutral worldview or a colorblind worldview or these sorts of things. And there's much to say about that. Vody Bauckham has spoken helpfully to some of this conversation as well. So let that be said. But fundamentally, a lot of us would hear th those words from MLK quoted when we were growing up in school, and we would think, wow, that's a beautiful vision. Kendi and his fellow woke scholars and activists actually critique MLK very strongly because they argue that MLK did not understand that America was white supremacist. It wasn't, it wasn't just that there were racists out there in places. The whole country is white supremacist. It's primarily whites who are white supremacist, whether you want to be or not, but also anybody who doesn't challenge the existing racial order, again, is part of white supremacy. And that is an evil idea. That is a gospel-denying idea. Every person has within them the seeds of racism, so-called, and ethnocentrism. Uh, I don't believe that race, by the way, is a real thing. I actually agree with 
the woke, that it is a social construct, as Bauckham does, as others do. Um, but saying that I have the potential to be a racist or an ethnocentrist is not the same thing as saying that I am, an, I am a white supremacist. So long answer here, but Brad, that's why I've tried to start speaking up especially. I wrote some blogs 10 months ago, and now I've done this video series, and I'm trying to say, if this is the kind of idea this system is producing, this system is going to take the church captive because that is not a biblical idea. The Bible does not teach that white people are white supremacists and especially wicked. America does have a history with slavery in which some white people definitely, and some even in the church, did buy into a a terrible ideology that saw black people in particular as inferior, and that's wicked and evil. Praise God slavery was overcome. Praise God Jim Crow was overcome. Praise God we have made real progress in this country. But again, wokeness as an ideology says, no, we haven't made progress. Actually, you all are deceived. You thought the end of slavery and the end of Jim Crow was real racial progress. No, 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 no. The whole system, I repeat myself, is white supremacist. Our work has just begun. And I I think that is an unbiblical idea. In some of those lectures, you describe four categories of uh, Christians or professing Christians with respect to wokeness. Could you summarize those four categories and explain uh, you mentioned that church discipline should apply to one of those categories in particular. Could you explain what you mean by those categories in the relationship to wokeness? Yeah, in this series, Christianity and Wokeness, which I'm seeking to turn into a book in months ahead, um, you, I'd appreciate your prayers for that if any of this resonates. Um, there's very few people speaking up about this in the broader culture and also in the church. Um, but I'm, I'm trying to do my small part, not the, not the hero of the age, but trying. Um, I give this, these four categories, and I say the first category is the non-woke. That would be us uh, and probably a good number of you in the room. The second category are, I'm going to simplify, but are the confused. This is where I think most people are today with regard to this stuff. I think tons of people are just plain confused, and they don't know what critical race theory is, and... They don't know why when they watch the NBA or Major League Baseball, they're seeing um, slogans on the back of players' jerseys, and they don't really know how to handle that. And, and they're not racist themselves, but again, they don't have the tools or the training or the time to really parse this all out. So I think a lot of people are confused. And then the third category uh, are the engaged, and these are people who are, you know, maybe some younger people who are retweeting Black Lives Matter as a hashtag and these sorts of things and are, are promoting some woke voices on their social media feed. They're not all in. Um, they, they, they hear wokeness talk and they think, I'm a Christian. I want to be for justice. I want to be against racism. So I assume then I should basically retweet these hashtags and, and so I call them the engaged. And then the last category are the, um, the committed. These are your pro-woke teachers. These are pastors who are calling white people from pulpits to repent of their whiteness, something that is happening across America. So um, what should I say here? 
I'll say this. I'll give you an example. Actual flesh and blood example. I have friends um, who are white. Remember that I don't believe there's such a thing as race. There's one human race. There's different ethnicities. There's different skin colors that God made for his glory. But there's not such a thing as race that distinguishes humanity. Oh, you're this kind of humanity from that kind of humanity. So a white family who has a few natural-born white children and then has adopted several black children and um, a family that seeks to love the nations and be gracious to people of all backgrounds and skin colors and all the things that a, a church like this and a church like mine promotes and teaches out of the overflow of the gospel, which unites all peoples in Christ. Well, this couple and others have heard in different churches across America that they need to repent of white supremacy. And children have asked white fathers and mothers if the white parents hate naturally the black children in the same family. Do you understand? Do you understand what I'm articulating? This couple, out of the overflow of the gospel, has adopted children that don't look like anything like them, purely out of love, not, not out of some desire to get cultural points, out of love, out of Christian love, out of the gospel of grace, something I'm sure happens at this church. And this couple is told that they are racist. And these kids are told that their parents are white supremacist and need to repent. This is what is infiltrating the church. Yeah, and it's not just happening from the culture. That happened, we heard that, related to the recent nomination to the Supreme Court. And that we would expect in the broader culture that is certainly confused. But like you said, this is happening in the church among those who profess to be one in Christ Jesus. Now you have said that those proponents, those who are engaged and are promoting this should be church disciplined. And I know you've received a lot of pushback on that. Just very quickly summarize your response to the pushback when people have said, you're calling for church discipline of those who promote critical race theory? That's ridiculous. You're the divisive one. You're the fundamentalist. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be calling for this. How do you respond to that? Yeah, I, um, I have called for church discipline in this Christianity and Wokeness series for the fourth category. So what am I saying there? Not for the confused, not for the engaged even, you know, your 20-year-old at UCLA retweeting a Black Lives Matter hashtag or UMKC back in Kansas City who's a member of the local church. No, not calling for discipline for them, calling for teaching and shepherding. But for the fourth group, yes, the group that is calling white people to repent of whiteness without any accusation of racism on these people's part, I mean, uh, yes, I believe that is a, that is a false idea. I believe that is adding to the gospel. I believe that is creating a new law. And so people have asked me, since I gave these talks in Minnesota, is there anything you want to modify or walk back in terms of calling for excommunication of those who teach and promote 
wokeness in the sense that they are this all-in category, in the sense that they are they are in their Facebook community telling all the white people, fellow white people in many cases, that they are white supremacists. Um, what I believe should happen is they they should be taken through the steps of discipline. It doesn't mean you, you go up to them and you whack them on the head with an excommunication stick and they're gone. Um, that's not how discipline works for anyone, actually, if you study Matthew 18, 15 to 20. But you do confront them individually. If they don't hear you, you go with two or three witnesses. If they don't hear you then, you go with the elders of the church, as many as you can. Uh, if, you, if they don't hear you then, you tell it to the whole church. If they don't respond at that point in repentance, uh, they are excommunicated. And to the question, so that those are the steps of discipline that I believe they should be engaged with. We all have to continually be going through discipline even before those steps in terms of just confession of sin. But uh, to the question, do I have any modification of what I said in calling for excommunication of those who go all the way through those steps, very important point, and don't repent? The modifications I have to offer are none. No. Amen. Yeah. And that really is refreshing because, as we've already noted, in this day and age, men who are called to, to take a stand are those who are bowing and kneeling to very serious, dangerous cultural forces. And so when, when, you, when you express that and your courage to remain faithful, that is the kind of model that we see for even with the Apostle Paul in, in Philippians chapter 1, when the Philippian church heard that he was still under house arrest in Rome, and yet they heard that he was still standing strong for the gospel. Paul says there in that opening part of the chapter that his imprisonment has led to greater courage uh, among others. And so that's what we need today. We need men, especially seminary professors, pastors, to take that stand. And the more that that happens, the stronger the church will be. And, and conversely, the more of these men who are, who are stumbling and kneeling and bowing before these cultural forces, the reverse happens. It just leads more in the church to capitulate to these cultural pressures. There's so much we could talk about. We're, we're coming near to the end. I wanted to ask you a few more questions here, and we could have some maybe shorter answers as we try to get through a few more of these. I want to address the issue of pronouns. Now, we get back for a moment to the transgender issue, and one of the common questions is, how do we deal with those who say that we are to address them either by a different pronoun than what their biology is, or a, a, a different name that would be feminine when they're masculine. Uh, how do you deal with that pronoun issue? And it could be, you know, let's think of it this way, a, a boss to a, 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 an employee or an employee to his boss who is saying these kinds of things, or colleagues at work, you know, or neighbors, et cetera, et cetera. How do we deal with a pronoun issue? We have to know that, strangely, the two areas that are most bringing all this to a point in our culture today are, strangely, bathrooms, 
public restrooms. Who would have thought we'd be arguing about public restrooms? The one thing most of us want to do, by the way, with public restrooms is forget we were ever in them, let alone be discussing them. There's only one good thing about the mask ordinance, and it's you can wear them in the restrooms. We should all wear masks all the time for reasons like that. I agree. Yeah. 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 Well, let's let that one pass. Uh, We shouldn't. But anyway, you're right about the potential... Maybe, maybe you should carry your mask in your pocket from now on uh, for, for yeah, just, occasions. Just for that. Yeah, yeah just for that. Okay. Um, restrooms and then pronouns. Things that we, a lot of us before the last few years had forgotten what pronouns were from like eighth grade English, but here we are talking about pronouns. So these elemental matters of life are interestingly where these conversations are going at the most basic level. And here's what I would say. We want to try to communicate graciously to sinners of all kinds. Let's say we're a Christian in a secular workplace. Let's not do a pastor thing, a ministry thing. Let's press right in to where a lot of church members here and in Kansas City and elsewhere are going to be. They're going to be in secular workplaces where they do not have a lot of peers who agree with them. Let's say their boss does not agree with them, and they are going to be faced with the choice of either affirming this person's pronouns and name or using the, the name and pronouns that correspond to their God-given sex. Sex being a better term than gender. Gender being a more fluid term in general terms than sex. We, we, some, we sometimes use gender, but better term is sex. So, I think we are called here to tell the truth. I don't think we have an exception clause when it comes to pronouns. I don't think, as, in other words, as Christians, we should tell the truth on everything but then we throw a flag on the field when it comes to pronouns. I think we have to use their, the pronoun that is, that corresponds with their God-given sex. I think we have to know in doing so, Brad, that the worst could happen to us. Yeah. But I think we have to tell the truth. What, what is the Christian church if not a truth-telling church? That's what we exist to do. Get our business card. It says, institution founded on the truth. We're not here for something else other than the truth. And the truth is not opposed to love. We are to be those Ephesians 4.15 who are speaking the truth in love. So the truth is loving. People won't necessarily receive it as that. Don't mishear me. They won't necessarily like that. Your boss may not like that. Your employer may fire you for telling the truth. But this is what the church is here to do. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We are a truth-driven people. We have to recover this identity, come what may. Amen. And we need that courage. So many just give up on those issues and allow for the culture just to invade. And uh, this is an excellent call to courage in these issues. A few more questions here. What kind of resources would you give to those who have family members who are struggling? Uh, Maybe it's even their own children. Maybe it's extended family or friends. Now, I know you don't want to toot your own horn here, but I do want to take a moment to promote some of the books that you have uh, written on this, and I have one of them up here. 
uh, maybe explain a little bit how this book, it's called What Does the Bible Teach About Transgenderism? You've written it together with Gavin Peacock. How would a book like this help somebody? What is it designed to do uh, for someone who knows someone who's struggling with these issues? First of all, like me, it's very short. <laughs> I, I see a resemblance, yes. So uh, write books. But that's that, good. That's good. Write that's books really that good. correspond with your size. That's the first advice. That, no, that's neither here nor there. I've uh, seen some of your other ones. That's not necessarily That's the case. right. I tried to write big books, but maybe I'm stuck with these. Um, this is a, a book. I think this trilogy is in the bookstore and Reenchanting Humanity is as well. People told me that. Before the session? Yeah. In fact, right after this session, the bookstore will be open for 20 minutes or so. So if you're interested in this, make a note, and you can go to the bookstore, and and you can look for these. They have them. The trilogy, what does the Bible teach about homosexuality? What does the Bible teach about lust? What does the Bible teach about transgenderism? And the bigger book, Reenchanting Humanity. So with that said, yeah, go ahead and explain how that can help. Yeah, so this is just a short book. It's not aimed at scholars. It's not shot into the clouds. It's aimed at Christians who want a biblical resource on transgender. Gavin Peacock is a pastor in uh, in Canada. He played almost 20 years of English Premier League soccer. That's not why I chose to co-write the book with him. It's because he's a pastor who loves the Word of God. Um, be a great guy to bring down for this men's ministry at some point. But we wrote this book because... Christians don't know how to handle this issue. Understandably, there's almost no resources on it. And so we pray that this is a kind of layman's guide to transgenderism from a biblical whole counsel and gospel focused perspective. Our purpose in writing this book is not to say that, uh, that this is the issue that puts you in the spiritual penalty box and you can't get out of. Our purpose is to say this issue, like homosexuality, like entrapment to pornography, which is where tons of guys are today, is a gospel issue. And there is immense hope for people who are caught in this lifestyle or pulled to it or have this desire or temptation pattern. Our goal is to say, number one, embracing this identity or having these thoughts even or these desires is sinful. So to show the sinfulness of this, but then to show the hope of the gospel and to show that God will make all things new. Christ will make you a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, and your desires will be renewed by, by the power of Christ. Yeah, it's a great little resource. And in, in fact, there are many questions we couldn't get to tonight that I have on my list, but they are actually addressed in, your, in, the, in the final section of the book as you have these key questions that you're commonly asked and some really helpful answers. So for some of you who submitted questions and I didn't get them to, to, to them tonight, uh, my apologies for that, but you can get the resource and find the answers there. Uh, one more question as we draw things to a close. I want you to spend a few moments addressing the man on a heart-to-heart level who is struggling with either homosexuality, same-sex attraction, or confusion over his, uh, his sex. Address that person. Give that person counsel and, and bring us back to the gospel, how you'd apply the gospel to that. Amen. I would want to say in similar terms to, to my brother um, what I was saying to my children earlier, just that we all go astray in many ways. 
we all have thoughts and desires and feelings that are ungodly. If that is your experience, you are not alone. You are in good company. In fact, you are in 100% good company here because we all struggle in many ways. What does James say? Same phrase, but with a slightly different word. We all stumble in many ways. This is a fellowship of sinners. The church is not a collective of the perfected right here and right now. We are sinners. We fundamentally confess our infinite need for Jesus Christ. And if you struggle with a temptation pattern to homosexuality or transgenderism or pornography, if you struggle to to know that you have a stable identity, which a ton of people do struggle with today, I want you to hear that God has made you in his image. This is a better truth than anything the LGBT lobby will ever tell you. You are made by God for God to know God. That is an enchanted truth. That is why you draw breath. That is why you have a heart. That is why you have a mind. That is why you have a mouth. That is why you have a soul. So that you would know God. You're made in God's image. But you have fallen in Adam, as we all have. And so now you need the second Adam, as we all do. And the good news is that even if you have this battle with the flesh in these certain areas, we all have our own battle, Christ will make all things new. Christ makes us a new creation in salvation when we trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, claiming his blood to wash us perfectly of all sin. And then after becoming a Christian, we know that the the power of sin is broken, Romans 6, The presence of sin, though, until we die or Jesus returns, remains. So the power of sin is broken. The presence of sin remains. And so we call upon God for all the gospel resources that are in Jesus Christ to overcome temptation, evil desire, wrong thoughts, pull to a wrong identity, and all other sin. And the good news is that the spirit who is in us is stronger than the world. Friends, there is only one force in the cosmos stronger than sin. Satan is powerful. Sin sends billions of people to hell, but there is one force stronger, and it is God's grace. It is God's grace. God's grace will take a broken mess like you and a broken mess like me, remake us, give us a new name, make us a new creation, and give us power, ongoing power, sanctifying power, day-by-day power as a Christian. Last thing I'll say, in my family devotions, we've been studying Psalm 1. The tree, the righteous man is like a tree planted by streams of living water. My wife pointed out to me, so here I'm name-checking my wife. She's a theologian's daughter, though, so she's got some She's got some extra bonus points there. But she pointed out to me when, when I was leading family devotions, her comment was, and isn't it good, honey, that God treats us like a tree? Because a tree doesn't grow in a day. And that's such good news. God saves us. God sanctifies us. But it's like a tree that grows over 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years. So know that God's grace is powerful to save. 
and God's grace is going to get you all the way to the end. God bless you. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, this has been a rich time. And again, we want to thank you for coming all this way to spend the evening with us. Uh, Your wisdom has been very profound and appreciated, and we certainly appreciate your courage and your dedication to be faithful to God's Word. As we close our time, I want to I pray for Dr. Strand, and then right after our prayer, we'll close with an, an important hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. We're coming close to, the, to Reformation Day, and so I think in light of the, um, uh, the, the challenges we face, there's nothing better than for us as men to raise our voices and to praise our God for being the, the, the fortress that he is for us. But before we sing, I want to pray for you and your ministry. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the gospel. That as we were reminded tonight, it took only even just one sin to damn us for eternity. Even just one small lie, one small mistruth, mistake would be enough to separate us from you eternally. And yet it is your gospel that transcends that, that depravity and lifts us out of the mire and reunites us into fellowship with you. We're so thankful for that reminder tonight, and it doesn't matter from where we've come, it doesn't matter what background we have, there is hope in the cross of Christ. What a wonderful truth, and it is unparalleled. There's nothing in this world that can compare with that. We pray that you would Continue to use Dr. Strand to minister your word around this country and even beyond, especially in a time as this when the, uh, the day grows darker and the opposing forces stronger. We need in your church strong voices who are committed to your word and will proclaim it courageously without apology. We thank you that you're doing that through Dr. Strand, and we pray that you'd give him strength to continue, give him health. We pray for his family, that you would also protect them, give them wonderful unity and fellowship. We pray that you'd open many doors for Dr. Strand and his ministry to bring this truth to to new, new ears who need to hear this message. And we pray that in his life, and in his family, through his ministry, you would see it to your pleasure to glorify your son and make much of him through Dr. Strand. Again, we thank you for this evening. and We give you all the glory in the name of your son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.